Welcome to the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, a senior writer with the ABA Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Jerry Goldman, a research professor at Chicago Kent College of Law, who also spent many years as a political science professor at Northwestern University. He's the founder of Oyez, a multimedia website that breaks down U.S. Supreme Court opinions into simple English. Goldman is retiring, and this fall, the website is moving to the Legal Information Institute at Cornell University Law School. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. So how are you feeling about the site moving to Cornell? Quite satisfied. I've long been a fan of the work of Tom Bruce and his colleagues at the Legal Information Institute, and I'm admiring of their uh, ability to speak to uh, a wide professional audience. And the move to Cornell will allow OYE to reach a still wider array of the interested public in the Supreme Court. Now, I have heard that there's about 50 pieces of information you'd like to find for this site. Can you tell me a bit about what those things are and how you plan to go about tracking them down? Well, it really goes back to the aim I set for myself many years ago, which was to locate, record, transcribe, identify, and align all of the public sessions in the Supreme Court. The recording system was installed in 1955, and in October 1955, the court turned on the reel-to-reel recording devices, and they've been going along ever since. That's a lot of audio, and much of it um, concerns admissions to the bar and other ephemera, The largest portion are oral arguments at these public sessions, as well as opinion announcements from the bench. So we went in, uh, in collaboration with the National Archives, we dubbed all of the master tapes held by the National Archives and matched that information against their accession list and the court's daily journal. In doing so, we found some items that were never recorded or we thought were recorded, but the tapes were blank, or they were recorded, but the tapes themselves were incomplete. Either they were missing a chunk in the middle, or they never started on time, or they never finished, uh, or they were lost. So those became our, our missing items. And over the years, we've tracked those down either because they were misfiled in the archives or there were secondary copies that we might be able to employ. And we did our level best to scrape everything we possibly could from the National Archives. And then we discovered, well, there were some that were lost to time and will never never be found. But the Supreme Court also has a, a separate set of these recordings that only go back to the early 1980s, but we suspect that the collection is fairly complete, and we've made a request with the National Archives to obtain these 
last items from the Supreme Court, and I expect that we will have reasonably good results for these last remaining items. I also discovered that there were some pieces of audio that were simply poorly recorded, simply because in the early days from 1955 to about 1975 or so, the justices often did not turn on their microphones, which made it quite difficult to grasp what they were saying from the microphone at the uh, lectern used by the attorneys. So that's really sad when you're listening to a really important case, um, an historic case, and it's almost impossible to discern uh, what's going on, but uh, that's the best we could do. So since you've been running this site, have there been some technological changes with the court that makes it easier to archive the information? Yes and no. Uh, The Supreme Court in 2004 or so decided to end its reel-to-reel analog recording system in large measure because the companies that manufactured iron acetate tape were going out of business and the supply was getting short. The equipment itself was subject to failure and repair. So the court elected to move to a a digital recording system. But in my judgment, uh, the court's choice was not a wise one, uh, though I can understand for management reasons what it did and why it did so. The court records its public sessions now as MP3 recordings. That is, they're using the MP3 standard, which is a delivery standard for their base recordings. Now, an archivist would tell you that MP3 is not a recording, a reliable recording standard, and the court or anyone else engaged in this activity should be recording at a lossless standard, an open standard like WAV or AIFF. But that's the hand we're dealt, and uh, the court's MP3 recordings are the materials we have to work with. So in a way, it's easier for us to handle these materials, uh, but in the long run, I think a poor choice for uh, historical purposes. Do you have a sense of why they decided to use the MP3 format? I can only guess, but I think they probably have a turnkey solution where they don't need anyone to manage the operation. The cost of the media when they first began was probably expensive, but now it's dirt cheap and they didn't anticipate uh, that reduction in cost. Now that they've installed it, that's what they have and they're not planning to change. I also suspect that they may have taken advice from the Administrative Office of United States Courts, which probably has has made some judgment about what would be the preferred recording system for the federal courts of appeals and the district courts, and the Supreme Court probably went along with that. But again, from an archival standpoint, I'm disappointed with that choice. That being said, it also makes it easier for us to obtain these materials for two reasons. First, the court now releases audio from the arguments at the end of the week of oral arguments. 
So we have a prompt way to access these materials because they're available to the public. It also makes it easier for us to edit and share the opinion announcements, which the court does not release to its website, but delivers to the National Archives at the end of every Supreme Court term. So once the National Archives gets these source materials from the Supreme Court, they will then transfer them to us, make them accessible to us, and then we can edit out the opinion announcements, transcribe them, identify the speakers, and share them on our website. What are some of the significant technology changes you've made to the website over the years? Well, I guess the when this started, 20 or 25 years ago, we were building our web pages by hand. Every page was bespoke HTML. And we probably had 100 cases to begin, and maybe every time we added one, we had to rewrite the page. And my first technical lead who had just graduated from Northwestern, uh, Joe Jermuska, said, I have an interesting idea. He said, why don't we put the data in a database and then we can build every page on the fly because the processing is getting so fast that you could instantly create a web page. What a brilliant idea. (laughs) Of course, it's, you know, stock idea today, but it was really an engaging thought. So it enabled us to ramp up production uh, at a much faster clip. So that's certainly one technical change. Another uh, and many more changes along the way, principally in the content management systems we employed to create this information and share it. And that became super complex as the website became more complicated in its structure. Uh, We also uh, faced um, uh, challenging issues with storage and, you know, we started when we were, were recording these materials, dubbing them from the National Archives. We started with DAT tape recording. Then we dubbed to CD audio, then to CD, then to DVD, then to hard drives, then massive hard drives. And then, uh, as most large operations today, we're all in, all of this information is in the cloud and so is our deep storage. So we have no devices anymore, and we just rely on cloud computing to handle the back-end management of content and delivery. So uh, enormous changes uh, that have transpired in the 20-plus years uh, this site has been operating. Speaking of technology, you have a really great ringtone on your phone. (laughs) Can you tell us about it? Well, uh, you know, the marshal of the court announces the arrival of the justices at every session. And I've heard a lot of these marshals' calls in the Supreme Court when I visited and certainly over thousands and thousands of oral arguments. And we found one that really stood out. uh, And this was from Marshal... Wong, uh, probably in the 1960s, that had real 
force and personality behind the call. And we selected that one and make it available now as an MP3 file on our website. And you can convert an MP3, this very short MP3, to a ringtone. The instructions are a little complex, but anyone with more than a modicum of experience uh, can transform it into a ringtone. But I promised uh, you, Stephanie, that I would make sure that you got a copy of the ringtone format and you can share it with your listeners. Will you play it for us now so our listeners can hear? Sure. Here you go. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. That's great. Do you know if any of the Supreme Court justices have that as your ringtone? No, I'm sorry, I don't, but uh, it would uh, please me mightily if if they did. (laughs) Now, I do, I must say, the current marshal, Pamela Talkin, who's a great public servant, did tease me a bit um, at one point when she knew about this ringtone and wanted to know why I wasn't using her voice as the ringtone. But she understood that Marshall Wong, one of her predecessors, really had a gift for this delivery, and she wasn't offended at all. All right. And that's everything that I have today. Professor, would you like to add anything else? I'd like to remind your audience that we have just released uh, the Oye app. It's free for iOS devices, and it will enable users to access all or selected portions of the Oye archive. That means that you can create your own collection of materials if you're interested in the current term only or you're really interested in all the ERISA cases only or only the patent cases, only the trademark cases, you can easily do so now and have the convenience of that information at your fingertips wherever you are. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you for allowing me to share this knowledge with your audience. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you've been listening to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazer podcast series. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.